Good morning, church. If you're joining us online, good morning and welcome to you also. Uh, I want to begin with just a simple observation that uh, I think is something you learn as early as kindergarten, uh, but it's that instructions or directions really matter, right? As, uh, as I've gotten older, it's been things like putting together Ikea furniture. I've talked before about my hatred of flat box furniture that you have to put together. And there's a part of me that always wants to chuck the directions that never goes well, right? Because there's a way that those things are designed to fit together and instructions and directions matter. Um, I think I learned this at a young age on a family camping trip. Uh, one of the ways my family loved uh, growing up to just kind of relax and decompress was, was to go camping. And so we had a, a little pop-up camper that we would take for one or two-week camping trips from time to time. Uh, but before that, we borrowed my grandparents' trailer, and we went uh, camping. I don't even remember the campground, but I was maybe six or seven at the time, and it was one of those moments where uh, my dad loved to just pass on his fatherly knowledge of, of camping. He was in Boy Scouts. And so in this particular day, he's showing us how to build a campfire, right? And he's, he's, he's chopping the wood and he's making the kindling and he gets it all set up. And he has just this absolutely like rip-roaring fire. And because I'm a six-year-old boy, I am enthralled with fire, right? So I am just, I'm locked in. I'm watching everything he's doing. And it comes to the time uh, where we're ready to make dinner. And he looks at me and he says, I'm going to show you in the Boy Scouts how we made the best campfire dinner. And then he pulls out this large can of, of baked beans. And he, he says, you know, in, in the Boy Scouts, we, we would pressure cook these in the fire and it just, it, it just tastes different. And so he takes that can and he, and he puts it down in the fire to pressure cook these beans. Now, a couple things. It had been 20 years at this point since my dad had been in Boy Scouts. Memories fade over time. Uh, he forgot a really key uh, instruction to this whole process, which is you have to poke a hole in the top of the can. So now my dad is not only teaching me how to make dinner, he's teaching me how to make a bacon-laced barbecue pipe bomb. Um, and so this thing is now just a ticking time bomb for when it's going to explode. But I am sitting there watching this whole process. But finally, when it goes off, you would have thought someone shot a cannon uh, at our campsite. I mean, it was loud. And where once there was a fire, now it's just boil it, like rolling smoke. Uh, the side of the camper was plastered in baked beans. I am plastered in baked beans. They're dripping off of me. And, and I look over and there's this couple. They're still in duck and cover mode, right? And as soon as it went off, they, they're looking like, who, who discharged a firearm? And it was all because my dad forgot that one clear, simple, yet really important instruction. You have to poke a hole in the can, right? You're not free to just decide, I'm going to skip that step. Because when you forget that or you don't do it, there are consequences to that. It matters. And, and, and I tell you that story to illustrate in a, in a hopefully humorous way what I think Second Chronicles 34 is pointing us towards. And this, this idea that, that the guidelines, the directions, the instructions, the thing that you build your life on really, really matters. And at the time of Judah and Israel's history in 2 Chronicles 34, they are at this place where they have literally forgotten God's word. The, the temple is in disrepair and literally, when, when I tell you they've forgotten God's word, they literally lost it. We're going to read this morning where they rediscover God's word. They find these scrolls as they're uh, rebuilding the temple and they go, oh, maybe this is important. But the problem is they're at a point in their history where they are facing the consequences of rejecting God's word, God's way, and God's wisdom. 
And what I want to challenge us with this morning is to take in the story of King Josiah, who simply yet courageously chooses to lead in a new and redemptive direction and to restore the legacy of the people of Israel and of Judah. So if you would, turn with me to 2 Chronicles chapter 34. We're going to walk through this together, beginning in verse 1. It says, Josiah was eight years old when he became king, and he reigned in Jerusalem 31 years. He did what was right in the eyes of the Lord and followed the ways of his father David, not turning aside to the right or to the left. In the eighth year of his reign, while he was still young, he began to seek the God of his father David. In his twelfth year, he began to purge Judah and Jerusalem of high places, Asherah poles, and idols. Under his direction, the altars of the Baals were torn down. He cut to pieces the incense altars that were above them, and he smashed the Asherah poles and the idols. These he broke to pieces and scattered over the graves of those who had sacrificed to them. He burned the bones of the priests on their altars and so purged Judah and Jerusalem. And the towns of Manasseh, Ephraim, and Simeon, as far as Naphtali, and in the ruins around them, he tore down the altars and Asherah poles and crushed the idols to to powder and cut to pieces all the incense altars throughout Israel. Then he went back to Jerusalem. In the eighth year of Josiah's reign, to purify the land in the temple, he sent Shaphan, son of Azaliah, and Messiah, the ruler of the city, with Joahah, son of Jehoahaz, the recorder, to repair the temple of the Lord his God. Now, as is typical in uh, the, the first and second chronicles, they will often introduce a king. And after they introduce the king and give you his name, uh, the writer of chronicles will give you a snapshot of the legacy of the leadership and the life of that king. So right away in verse one and two, we learn some pretty significant things about Josiah. Number one is this. He was eight years old when he became king. That's incredibly young. And, and the reason he became king at eight years old is because his father, Ammon, who was king of Judah, was assassinated. And what you discover is that Josiah did not come from a godly lineage. If you read back in chapters uh, 32 and 33, you will discover that Josiah's father, Ammon, was a wicked king who was part of the idol worship that crept into Jerusalem and to Judah and Israel. And likewise, his grandfather before him, Manasseh, was also an evil ruler. So Josiah comes from this lineage of, of kings who have departed from God's word and God's way, and he has an incredibly violent family background. He becomes king at eight years old because his father was literally murdered and they put Josiah in this place of power. Now there's this question of what kind of king, what kind of leader is Josiah going to be? And what you find as you read his description of his legacy is that he begins to chart a new redemptive course in a new direction. Verse two says this, he did what was right in the eyes of the Lord and he followed the ways of his father, David, not turning aside to the right or the left. And so I want to suggest to you that Josiah's legacy was this. He followed the word and the ways of God, and he did not deviate. And and this is a significant descriptor, right? This is not the lineage that Josiah comes from. He breaks a cycle of family sinfulness and brokenness, and he charts a new and redemptive course by the transforming power of God's grace. And what I want us to wrestle with this morning is, is this question. We see Josiah's legacy. I want us to wrestle with this question. What kind of legacy are you building right now? I mean, as as I read this, part of me thought, man, I hope that someday it can be said of me that he is someone who followed the ways of God and did not turn to the right or the left. And often when we talk about this idea of legacy, you might talk about it at the end of someone's life. You talk about the legacy they left behind. But listen, by the time you're having the conversation about the legacy you're leaving behind, it's too late to change it. 
And so I want us to wrestle with this right now. What kind of legacy are you building? And I don't care if you're young or old, wherever your age is, I want you to wrestle with that question. And, And a legacy is this. Legacy is about the consistent life pattern, your character, the decisions that you make lived out over the long haul. And if somebody were to look at your life right now, what are the things that they would use to describe who you are and how you live? Would it, would it echo something like said of, jo- of Josiah? And so I want us to have that question in the back of our mind as we look at how Josiah led this, this process of bringing spiritual renewal into the lives of the people of Israel. No, Josiah's challenge was this. He had to live and to lead in a culture that had deviated from God's word and God's ways. Right? The people of Israel were supposed to be the people of God. That was their identity, that God was in a covenant relationship with them. He had chosen them as his people through whom all nations would be blessed. But if you picked up on it in verse 8, when you heard me read the text, you heard that the temple was in disrepair. The temple is the very dwelling place of God among his people. That the temple is in disrepair is also a commentary on the spiritual life of Israel and Judah as a whole. Their relationship with God is in disrepair and in disconnect. So Josiah is not leading a process of spiritual renewal in a, in a culture that is cheering him on. He's leading spiritual renewal in a culture that has deviated from God's word and God's way and is actively pursuing uh, wor- the worship of idols. So he has to have the courage, the simple yet ordinary courage to lead in a countercultural, revolutionary way back to God's redemptive plan and purpose for his people. And that's part of what I want to challenge us with this morning, to live and build the kind of legacy in which we live and lead in a countercultural way that charts a redemptive course back towards a place of spiritual recommitment and renewal. Now, let's ask this question. How, 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 do, how do we spiritually deviate? How do we get off course? Sometimes for some of us, maybe there's a a clear decisive moment of spiritual rebellion where you just say, God, forget you, I'm going to do what I want. And sometimes that happens in a moment of significant trial or when you've encountered serious hardship. I've, I've talked to people who it's a clear decisive moment. But I think often for many of us, rather, it's, it's not so much a decisive moment as it is a series of small deviations. And I think how this happens is we begin to doubt God's sufficiency. And so we begin to look to success, someone or something else to bring a sense of joy and completion. And I think this is exactly what happened in, in the cultures of both Israel and Judah. They began to doubt this idea that God was enough for them. And you see this all throughout their history. God told them, I will be your God and you will be my people. And the people of Judah and Israel immediately go, okay, we would like a king. We want a king to lead us. Because all the other nations around us, they have kings. We want a king. And God tells them, he goes, you don't understand what you're asking. I will give you a king, but it's going to open up a whole lot of hardship for you, right? They didn't just want God to be their leader. They needed a king. Now, by the time we get to 2 Chronicles 34, we're in a place where the kings of Judah and Israel are actively leading them to a place of worshiping idols. God isn't sufficient. We need to to look and worship these idols that we can physically, tangibly see, feel, and touch. And it's because they doubted the sufficiency of, of God. And I think sometimes we do something similar. We don't trust the word of Jesus, that he came, that we might have life and have it to the fullness. Rather, we doubt that God is sufficient and we begin to look to other things to find a sense of fullness of life. Sometimes it's success. And listen, success isn't a bad thing. 
I think success can be a beautiful blessing of God. The problem becomes when success is the thing that we worship, the place from which we draw our identity and we draw our sense of self, then I think it becomes an idol. In, in other places, it's uh, God isn't sufficient. It's, it's, I need someone to fill that space. And sometimes I see this in a desire to be in a certain relationship. Maybe it's a desire to be married. And once I'm married and I find the right spouse, they'll bring a sense of completion that I don't feel outside of that. Sometimes I talk to couples who are in unhappy marriages and they think, well, if I could just divorce my spouse and find someone who really invests in me, then I would be happier without stopping to ask, how does this align with God's word and God's way? Because we doubt the sufficiency of his character. We doubt the sufficiency of his word's way and wisdom. And we we begin to make decisions independently of God's direction. And I think this is exactly what has happened in the history of Israel and Judah. It's, It's a series of these small decisions that have led them to deviate from God's word, God's wisdom, and God's way. So here's, again, the big idea that I want us to wrestle with. Can we faithfully and courageously live out a godly legacy that leaves a spiritual impact? Can we faithfully and courageously live out a godly legacy that leaves a spiritual impact? And I I want you to think about this because it's easy to write this off, right? As we dive in in a moment to Josiah's reforms, we could look at it and say, yeah, but he's a king, right? I'm not a king. I don't have the influence he has. You might not have the platform that he has, but you have influence. I want you to think about the spheres of influence that God has blessed you with. If you have a family, you have a sphere of influence. If you have friendships, you have a sphere of influence. If you live in a neighborhood, you have a sphere of influence. If you are a business owner, if you work at a company, you have a sphere of influence. You are interacting and impacting people every day. The intentional question is how are you impacting people every day? You are leaving a legacy, whether you want to recognize it or not. The question is, are you intentionally building and cultivating a godly legacy that leaves a spiritual impact, or are you kind of floating through, letting come what may? And and by the way, this was not easy for Josiah. He was eight years old when he became king, right? And, And later it says... Uh, that it was in the 12th year or the eighth year of his reign while he was still young that he began to seek the God of his father, David. He's only 20 years old. And, and it's likely until the time that he was 20, he had regents who were leading around him because uh, uh, before he was 20, he couldn't be entrusted to lead the nation of Israel yet. And so he has to literally push back against a culture. This wasn't easy for him. And and he's leading in a culture that is far from Jesus, that doesn't value the things that he values in his pursuit after the God of his father, David. This was not an easy thing for Josiah. And so likewise, I want us to wrestle with that question. Will we courageously and faithfully live out a godly legacy? So let's look at Josiah's extraordinary but yet simple and courageous mission. I want to break down this process of how he led his people back to a way of godly living. So join me in Second Chronicles again, 34 verse 9. I want to read to you this part of the story where Josiah begins to lead spiritual renewal and begins to lead spiritual reform and watch the redemptive impact that it begins to have. Verse 9 says this, they went to Hilkiah the high priest and gave him the money that had been brought into the temple of God, which the Levites who were gatekeepers had collected from the people of Manasseh, Ephraim, and the entire remnant of Israel, And from all the people of Judah and Benjamin and the inhabitants of Jerusalem, they entrusted it to the men appointed to supervise the work on the Lord's temple. These men paid the workers who repaired and restored the temple. 
And they also gave money to the carpenters and builders to purchase dress stone and timber for Joyce and beams for the buildings that the kings of Judah allowed to fall into ruin. The workers labored faithfully over them to direct them were Jahath, Obadiah, Levites descended from Moriah, Zechariah, and Meshulam, descended from Kohath. The Levites, all who were skilled in playing musical instruments, which, do you ever just laugh at some of the details that the Bible includes? I love that they're like, these guys were overseeing the construction also. They were killer musicians, right? Just an added bonus in case you were wondering. Uh, They had charge over the laborers and they supervised all the workers from job to job. Some of the Levites were secretaries, scribes, and gatekeepers. While they were bringing out the money that had been taken to the temple of the Lord, Hilkiah the priest found the book of the law of the Lord that had been given through Moses. Let, Let me just pause there. They had like one copy, right, of the book of the law. Y'all, they lost it for a long time. We're we're talking at least from Ammon and and Manasseh, the two kings before. They lost it. That, that, That the Bible says they found the book of the law. This is a monumental moment where they displaced the very thing that was to guide how they were to live. So, Uh, Verse 15 says, Hilkiah said to Shaphan, the secretary, I found the book of the law in the temple of the Lord. He gave it to Shaphan. You can imagine him being like, here, you do something with it. I don't know what to do with it. Then Shaphan took the book to the king and reported to him, your officials are doing everything that has been committed to them. He starts with the good news, right? Works proceeding on pace. They've paid out the money. Then Shaphan, the secretary informed the king, Hilkiah, the high priest has given me a book and Shaphan read from it in the presence of the king. When the king heard the words of the law, he tore his robes. He gave these orders to Hilkiah, Ahakam, son of Shaphan, Abdon, son of Micah, Shaphan, the secretary, and Asiah, the king's attendant. Go and inquire of the Lord for me and for the remnant in Israel and Judah about what is written in this book that has been found. That hasn't been done for generations. He's saying, we found the book of the law. I want you to go and inquire of the book of the law. I want you to understand God's word and God's teaching. Right? He says, great is the Lord's anger that is poured out on us because those who have gone before us have not kept the word of the Lord. They have not acted in accordance with all that is written in this book. Hilkiah and those the king had sent with him went to speak with the prophet Huldah, who was the wife of Shalom, son of Takath, the son of Hasra, keeper of the wardrobe. She lived in Jerusalem in the new quarter. She said to them, this is what the Lord, the God of Israel says. Tell the man who sent you to me, this is what the Lord says. I'm going to bring disaster on this place and its people. All the curses written in the book that has been read in the presence of the king of Judah. Because they have forsaken me and burned incense to other gods and aroused my anger by all their hands have made. My anger will be poured out on this place and will not be quenched. Tell the king of Judah who sent you to inquire of the Lord. This is what the Lord, the God of Israel says. Because your heart was responsive. And you humbled yourself before God when you heard what he spoke against this place and people. And because you humbled yourself before me and tore your robes and wept in my presence, I have heard you, declares the Lord. Now I will gather you to your ancestors and you will be buried in peace. Your eyes will not see the disaster I'm going to bring on this place and on those who live here. So they took her answer back to the king. So again, this is the heart of this moment where Josiah leads a significant reform. The nations of Judah and Israel have been charting their own course. They've rejected God's word, God's wisdom, and God's way, and they've tried to do it independently. And Josiah, as his life is radically changed by his relationship with God, he begins to chart this course of spiritual renewal where he leads the people of Israel back to rightly aligning their life with the word, wisdom, and way of God. And where it says that they inquired of the Lord, it had been generations since anyone had stopped to say, God, how should we live? How should we direct our lives? 
This is literally a turning point in the history of Judah and Israel for this season of Josiah's reign. And what I want to do is I want to walk through and look at what does Josiah do? How does he lead this process? And how might it impact how we live and lead? So the first thing that I watch happen is that there's this realization that there are consequences to rejecting God's word and God's way. There's this moment, and and I think this moment, by the way, only happens through the truth of God's word and through the conviction of the Holy Spirit, that there's this moment where they can see that the trajectory that they have charted, this life of independence from God's word, way, and wisdom carries consequences, right? Just like my dad choosing to forget, well, he didn't choose to forget, he just forgot, right? He wasn't mindful. To put the hole in the can of baked beans, right, led to me being covered in baked beans and smelling like bacon and barbecue sauce for a couple days, Right? There were, there, were, there were consequences to that. Now, the people of Israel in this place were God is saying, listen, you're trying it on your own. You're, you're living in a way that's outside of my provision for you. Part of the calamity that they're about to experience is because they have stepped out from under God's protection and provision. And, and as a pastor, I often have conversations with people who are in a season of trial because of bad decisions that they've made. And there's this moment of like remorse of what, what would have been different? How would my life look different if I had been attentive to the word, way, and wisdom of God? Now, what happens next and, next, and I think this is the heart of it, is they recover the practice of engaging God's word. They recover the practice of engaging God's word as they find the book of the law. Do you notice that they read it, that they inquired of it, that they went to a prophet named Huldah to allow her to speak the truth of what, what is this book of the law? And church, I think it's fundamentally important that you and I, that we as followers of Jesus Christ, recover the practice of diligently engaging God's word. And and here's why. I I hope you recognize that all of us are disciples, right? We're, We're all disciples, first and foremost, of Jesus Christ. We're following him. But here's what I want us to think about even more. You are being discipled by someone or something. I want you to ask this question, who is discipling you? I think for too many of us, we spend hours and hours and hours in any given week being immersed in media, in news media, in social media, and we're inundated with all of these thoughts, ideals, values. And what happens is the thing that you immerse your life in begins to shape and form how you think and what you value. And too few of us spend time seriously engaging God's word. But as you find yourself immersed in God's word, it forms and shapes your imagination, your values, what you hope for, what you dream for, how you engage with the world around you. And I watched Josiah not only recover this practice, but he restores it to a place of priority in the life of Israel. Notice what it says in verse 31. Let me just read this to you. It says, the king stood by his pillar and renewed the covenant in the presence of the Lord to follow the Lord and to keep his commands and statutes and decrees with all his heart and soul, and to obey the words of the covenant written in this book. So not only did they recover the practice of engaging God's word, they restored it to a place of fundamental priority in their life. And so as we think about restoring God's word to a place of priority, I think there's three things in here. It's read, heed, and lead. First of all, we need to read and immerse our lives in it. Then we need to heed what it says right? It's one thing to read the word and then walk away. James says that you're like a man who looks in the mirror and forgets what he looks like. Rather, we're to heed the word of God, to let it form and shape how we, how we live. And in this way, we let the word of God lead our lives as we restore it to a place of priority. And, and here's what happens. As you recover the practice of engaging God's word, as you restore it to a place of priority in your life, you are going to begin to recognize places of wrongdoing. 
And this is exactly what happens for Josiah. Look at verse 21. He says, great is the Lord's anger that's poured out on us because those who have gone before us have not kept the word of the Lord. Catch this. They have not acted in accordance with all that is written in the book. In other words, their lives were out of alignment with God's word. And I can promise you as you recover the practice of engaging God's word, as you restore it to a place of priority, as you read it and engage with it, there are moments where the Holy Spirit is going to say, your life is out of alignment here. And that becomes a moment of course correction to realign our life with God's word and God's way. One of the things I wrestle with, I'm a fretter. There's times where like, I'd like to pretend that I'm good at conflict, but I'm really not great at it. Sometimes outwardly I handle it okay, but it takes a toll on me inwardly. When things aren't going perfect, you know, I I tend to fret about things. I I would like to tell you that I'm an optimist, but my wife has come to tell me, like, I think you're a pessimist, right? I, I tend to go to worst case scenario. And then what happens is it steals things from me. It steals my time. It steals energy. It steals presence with my family. And so there's days where I'm engaged in things with ministry and I go home and sometimes Lauren will say, hey, where are you? Because I'm there, but I'm not there. Do you know what I mean? I'm thinking about other things. I'm thinking about this hard conversation. I'm thinking about that thing that I just, I didn't get to resolve the way that I wanted to. Or I'm thinking about a situation that didn't get resolved at all. Or I'm thinking about this moment of of working with people through really difficult moments and experiencing a little bit of their trauma with them. And and all of those things weigh on me. And and, in the last year and a half, like there's been moments where honestly I've been not great. And so one, one Sunday morning, I'm in the men's class that I attend And we're reading Psalm 37. And and we read this line. And the the class wasn't even about this. But it was like that moment where time stopped and the Spirit was like, this is for you. 37.8 says, refrain from anger and turn from wrath. Catch this. Do not fret. It only leads to evil. Right? And as someone who's who's a fretter, as someone who worries about things more than I should, I saw that and I was like, don't fret. It only leads to evil. And, and I had this moment, I had spent some time writing, journaling, praying about it. I was like, God, how does fretting lead to evil? And one of the things that I felt like the Spirit really impressed on me is when I'm fretting and worrying about something, I'm assuming that my capacity, my intellect, my ability is enough to solve the problem. But the reality is I'm not living it in submission to the Lordship of Jesus Christ. I'm trying to handle it and God's saying, let it go. And the problem is, right, I go to worst case scenario and I begin to think the worst of others and God's like, stop fretting. It only leads to a place of evil. You need to let that go. But here's the thing. It's only as I engaged God's word and and in the beauty of community in the the midst of a class, as I engaged God's word, it helped me recognize areas where my life was out of alignment with the word of God. How about you? You have that experience where you engage God's word and the spirit says, this thing needs to change, needs to look different. And what it leads to for Josiah is a place of repentance. There's two places I think we see this concept of of repentance. The first is in verse 19, when Josiah hears the word of the law and he tears his robes. And the tearing of his robes is a symbol of deep, deep sorrow. But you'll notice when they consult the prophet Huldah later, she says this about Josiah. She says, your heart was responsive and you humbled yourself before God when you heard what he spoke against this place. Repentance is a couple things. Repentance is first and foremost sorrow over the places where we have uh, deviated from God's word, wisdom, and way. But repentance is also a humble and responsive, submissive heart before God that says, God, I, 
I recognize that I've been living in ways that are out of alignment. I'm sorry for that. God, I, I want to be humble and submissive and responsive to your redirection in my life. The, the Hebrew word for repentance is the word teshuva, and it literally means to turn or to return. It's the language of coming home. The story of the prodigal son in the New Testament, of the son who rebels and then later comes home, that is a demonstration of the Hebrew idea of repentance. It's not just sorrow for what we've done wrong. It's a change in trajectory and it's a moving back towards the ways of God. But the other thing that I watch in the repentance of Josiah and the people of Israel and Judah is this, is that they remove ungodly places and practices. Right? When you read chapter 34, verses 3 through 7, not only does Josiah repent, but he begins to take down the altars. He destroys the Asherah poles, which were a symbol of worship to false gods. He removes them. He gets rid of them. He literally chops up the altars, destroys them, burns them. And church, here's the thing. I think we need to take the courageous step as you think about the life and the legacy that you're building. We need to be willing to remove ungodly places and ungodly practices from our lives. And here's where I think we look at it and we go, well, that feels extreme. We spend a lot of time, some of us, in the course of a week engaging things like social media, right? Let's use this as a case study. I want you to think about how you engage social media, whether it's what you post or what you observe. And I want you to ask this kind of question. Does what I'm engaging in promote the righteous, holy life that God desires for me? Is my time invested in this thing becoming, helping me become more Christ-like? Can I tell you one of the things that broke my heart over the last two years in the political scene and the, the pandemic craziness? I thought, saw things posted by Christ followers that quite honestly just broke my heart. I saw arguments unfold that were so ungodly and so unchrist-like. And I'm going, how do I have a conversation with somebody who's far from Christ when they're looking at this as an example of the Christ that we claim to follow? Church, I think it's way past time that we tolerate and rationalize ungodly places and ungodly practices. We need to get really serious about the question of the ways and places and things that you're engaging your life and your time in. Is it promoting the righteousness of God and cultivating the holy Christ-like life that he desires for us? If you go home at the end of the day and it's just so easy, you're tired, you're exhausted, you work a long day and you just want to sink into Netflix and there's a lot of garbage on there and it's like, this is for the sake of art. Like, yes, there's nudity and terrible language, but it's artistic, right? Let me ask you that question. Is it promoting the holiness of God and helping you become more Christ-like? If not, I think we need to be serious about removing those things from our lives. And I'm not, I'm not talking about this in a, in a fundamentalist, dogmatic way. I'm talking about this in a relationship way that helps us recognize what are those things that are inhibiting our walk and our relationship with Jesus Christ. We need to be serious about recognizing and removing those things so that we can cultivate a life of greater connection with Jesus Christ. Finally, what I appreciated about Josiah was his refusal to waver. Not only did he chart this new course, not only did he lead a spiritual renewal, but look at what it says in verse 33. It says, Josiah removed all the detestable idols from the territory belonging to the Israelites. And he had all who were present in Israel serve the Lord their God. As long as he lived, they did not fail to follow the Lord, the God of their ancestors. And again, what a beautiful legacy. That he refused to waver and as long as he lived, They followed the ways of the Lord their God. 
So here's some questions I want us to wrestle with in an application and reflection way. I want you to think about where is God calling you to live out and lead into a godly legacy with intentionality and courage? Maybe you come from a very broken family and there's this process of renewal that God wants to lead you through, of recovering the practice of engaging God's word, of restoring it to a place of priority, of repentance, of of recovering this relational connection with God. Think about your life though. Where is God calling you to build into and lead into a legacy that is God honoring? Maybe it's uh, personally. Maybe in your own life, God is saying, there's some things that you need to do in your walk with me that I want you to repent and return to aligning your life to the words, wisdom, and ways of God. Maybe it's not personally. Maybe God is challenging you this morning to live communally in a way that is intentional in your investment in your family, friendships, and relationships. Maybe God is saying, I want you to intentionally invest in uh, friends that don't know Jesus. I want you to be intentional to lead your family in a God-honoring way. I want you to be intentional to lead your employees or to interact with your coworkers in a way that leaves a significant spiritual impact. Or maybe it's, it's corporately, maybe in a, in a large, big picture setting. Maybe you're a business owner. Maybe you're a significant leader at your place of employment and God has invested in you a significant platform. Now the question is not, how will you use that platform? The question is, will you cultivate it in a way that's intentional to leave a spiritual impact and legacy? And I want us to wrestle with this, to think seriously about what kind of legacy we are building in the present right now. And I pray that we, like Josiah, would be a people that live with the simple yet ordinary and extraordinary courage to take seriously the call to align our lives with God's word, wisdom, and way. As we close this morning, I'm going I'm to ask you to stand with me. And uh, as I thought about how do we close out this moment, I'm going to ask us to pray together uh, John Wesley's prayer of covenant renewal. John Wesley, of course, is one of the the significant founders of of our church, and he was really impacted by the Puritans. And the Puritans sought to live a holy life, and of course, they had some flaws in there. They got maybe a little bit too legalistic at times. But John Wesley was really struck by the intentionality and the intensity that they pursued that holy life. And so John Wesley wrote this prayer called his covenant renewal prayer. And he would pray this um, with the Holy Life Club that he was a part of, which was his accountability group. And he used this from time to time. So we're going to use this as just a corporate response for us as a body this morning, as sort of a renewal moment. So I'm going to ask if you would pray this with me. I am no longer my own, but yours. Put me to what you will. Place me with whom you will. Put me to doing put me to suffering. Let me be put to work for you or set aside for you, praised for you or criticized for you. Let me be full. Let me be empty. Let me have all things. Let me have nothing. I freely and fully surrender all things to your glory and service. And now a wonderful and holy God, creator, redeemer, and sustainer, you are mine and I am yours, so be it. And the covenant which I have made on earth, let it also be made in heaven, amen. I appreciate in that prayer, the the language of full surrender. Man, I didn't wanna pray that line. Let me be uh, put to suffering. 
Let me be praised. I like that. Let me be criticized. Not so much. But what I love about what John Wesley is saying is he's saying, my life is not my own. I'm submitting it and surrendering it into the sovereign will and hand of God. And so I pray this morning that that is not just words on a screen that we said together, but I pray that that becomes a cry of our heart. God, that you would have all of us, that there's no arena, no aspect of my life that's off limits, but God, I am yours and my life is yours to do what you would.